Aloha. I invite you guys to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And as you turn there, there's really one thing that we've been dealing with through 2020 on a global level, and it's been that the struggles of this season has really been overbearing. Can I get a witness there, right? Um, one of the roles of being a pastor and some of the unpleasant teas of being a minister of the gospel is dealing with struggles, personal struggles, uh, struggles in the church, struggles in the programs and organizations we're involved in, in this community, struggles, 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 struggles. Some of us, we have lost jobs. Some of us have lost businesses, their own local businesses. Some have lost many things. Many have lost loved ones. My family have lost five family members in the last couple of months. The first Thomaselli sibling, my oldest sister, Priscilla Kalani, has went home to be with the Lord a few months ago. We appreciate your love and your prayers. In my wife's family, her uncle and aunt died from the coronavirus just a week ago. A couple weeks ago, our cousins, my wife's cousins, newborn infants passed away in her womb and had to give birth to them. We did the funeral for her via via video as well as in person. And the struggle is real. Amen. There's a real struggle. As I look into your eyes, as I look into your heart, I pretty much know everyone in this room. I can sense it. I can feel it. I know it to be true. And as much as all those platforms have qualifications, the greatest platform is the Scripture. The Scripture says that there is sin in a perfect world. And that sin has ravished the world God created. So I don't know about you. When I am in my struggle... When I'm, in, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, I have to remember those of the past that followed Christ before me, who used the sufficiency of Scripture to encourage their heart. And if I could encourage you this morning... I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. And I'm so glad that Jesus set me free. Aren't you glad? And I'm so glad. That my Jesus set me free, singing glory, hallelujah, Jesus set me free. And I thank God he didn't stop there. 
But there's an adversary that he set us free from. And his name is Satan had me bound. Come on. But Jesus set me free. Ah, acapella, yeah? Satan had me bound. Hey! But Jesus set me free. Hallelujah. Satan had me bound. But Jesus set me free. Singing glory. Hallelujah. Jesus set me free. He set me free. He set you free. He set us free. My family in Tennessee would say he set y'all free. If you're from the deep side, it say you ends are free. All right. You guys, we are all free. Let me catch my emotions, color my. We are an expository preaching church. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. Pray for me as I preach today, please. It's by God's sufficient word that my weakness is strong. It's God's perfect word that we can be transparent of our tribulations, our trials. Even the ones, most of all, the ones we do our own self. Amen. And it is God's word that restores us. The exposition of God's word is something to not take lightly about saints of God. But we should struggle in the study of God's word. We should write and write and write and read and read and read. And read even more and more and more until we somehow get it and read even more and write even more. It's an examination of intensity. It's an examination of hours upon days, upon years, upon generations of studying. And even at the end of the age, we can't even grasp the whole full totality of it. But it's honor. It's good. This is why we believe we're starting a new series entitled The Struggle is Real. Living a Christian life in a fallen world. If you could be honest, how many of you got some struggles? Right? We got some struggles. And if you could talk back to me today to help me preach, help me please. But as we read the word of God, would you stand with us preciously to honor the word of God faithfully, the perfect word that is without error and that is all powerful. We land on chapter 12 after nearly three years of spending our time in the gospel of Mark. We land in a continuation text. You remember last week from our old series called Life with Jesus. That Jesus is having a dialogue with the religious rulers. This dialogue continues on from a question that Jesus does not answer 
due to their insufficient answer. I pray to God that you do not have an insufficient answer today to the God Almighty. Amen? But the scriptures that will be proclaimed today will give you the right answer theologically, doctrinally, biblically, for the glory of his name. Mao Kao Kao. And it says in chapter 12, verse 1, And he, Jesus, began to speak to them. Who's them? The religious rulers. In a parable. He says, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came... He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent away this servant empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, and some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one another. He had one, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus said, he will come. He will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Epulikako. Lord, we need your clarity today. We need you to clear up any friction and tension in this text today. We don't need persuasive speech from man. We need your spirit, God, to indwell in us and to make your words clear. And understandable. And God, may we hold fast to a gospel that is true, that is blameless, that does not return void, but gives us everything we need in the person and in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, through the power of His Holy Spirit, through Your name alone, Father God. God's Ohana says, Amen. The Holy Lala, you may be seated.
The word parable comes to my mind when we think about this text today. Jesus uses a specific word called the parable to continue this conversation or dialogue from this temple setting. Mark uses the phrase, he, Jesus, to begin to speak to them. And I want you to look at two very important words that Jesus, that we see in Mark's account in this specific passage. The word speak. Jesus spoke. A word in the Greek literally means that Jesus taught something. And then this teaching has to be received if it's taught. Therefore, the second important word is them. Jesus both spoke, and Jesus spoke directive to them. Who are them? The religious Pharisees, the religious leaders. A parable. For some of you who may not know what this is, not accustomed to your daily walk. A parable is an illustrative story with a lesson. So Jesus used a story. Some people may call the narrative partly fiction, meaning that it's not true, but we know it's true, right? Because the parables Jesus spoke deals with godly principles that point us to the Lord. So there's two ways we could see this parable, this illustrative story with a lesson. The first way is through a prophetic way. Jesus is prophesying of an event to come about himself. But in addition, this parable could also be a judgmental parable. That Jesus is providing a judgmental end to those who do not receive him but reject him. You see, when you deal with parables, you deal with a lot of symbolic language. For this text, we see symbolic characters that's connected with the literal people of the temple setting today. For instance, let's give me give it to you straight off in the beginning of the sermon. The man that planted this vineyard is God himself. The servants who this man sends is God's prophets. The tenants, right, are sinners. We could also say that they're the religious rulers in this circle, in this conversation, in this dialogue. And lastly, the son. The son is who, everybody? Jesus. Beautiful, right? So in light of symbolic language, in light of symbolic characters, we see a beautiful account of the gospel story, right? In in addition, we see the symbolic beauty of God's creation in this created vineyard. Details of this is found in verse 1. He he creates this vineyard. He puts up a fence around it. He installs a wine press. He builds a tower. He leases the vineyard to the tenants. He leaves for another country. There's so much symbolic language in this verse 1 alone. This parable in this verse 1 teaches us that God is a gracious God. 
God gives. Look at it. He gives these tenants dominion over his vineyard. Does that sound familiar, saints? He gives these tenants stewardship over his vineyard. He leaves these tenants to enjoy his vineyard. This is the Genesis account. This is chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is the account of creation. The Lord created everything, and he said it was good. He gave man the blessing to rule it, right, and steward it. However, we see in Genesis 3 that man sins, right, Adam and Eve, and the result of this sin would be sin to the rest of mankind. Separation, amen. And so the beauty of this is that God, the owner, walks away from the vineyard because we understand the account of the fall of man. Man is fallen. Man is in need of salvation. So from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see this big picture of God redeeming that which he lost. Amen. Therefore, the world today is in big trouble. All three yeses. Let me say it again. The world today is in big trouble. They are in struggle. Why do you think we struggle? Because the world is fallen. We struggle because we are sinful in need of redemption. And blessed be to God, we have a parable that speaks about it. So here's a few things I want you to grasp as we exegete our text today. When you face struggles, remember, number one, God's patience. Verse 2 to verse 5, we see a clear breakdown. Servants were sent one at a time. For what? To collect the fruit from the vineyard. Look at what happens when they attempt to collect this fruit from the owner's vineyard. They were beaten. They were put to shame. Some were even killed. And look at the patience of the landlord. He doesn't show up right after the first person is killed or beaten. He continues to send servant after servant. After servant, after servant, he sends multiple servants. He could have come himself and wiped these tenants out, right? But in his patience, he does not. His patience, the patience of God, reminds us in this room that God is a merciful God. Think about your sin today, y'all. Think about the things you do behind closed doors that nobody know. Think about it. God will be just to smite you with a thunderbolt right where you stand. But he is patient. He is patient. He is merciful. Psalms tells us this in Psalms 103. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Listen to this power. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That would change how you love your spouse, amen? That would change how you love your cakey, amen? 
That will change how you love your boss. Amen? God is gracious. God is merciful. Jesus makes it clear that his father, the landlord, is a patient and merciful God. Time after time, specifically in the Old Testament, God sends prophets, servants of the Most High, to speak and serve God's people. Just like these servants in this parable, they beat these prophets. They reject these prophets. Jeremiah 44 says it clear. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants and the prophets saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. Hate doesn't mean that God kind of did not like it. Hate means he absolutely hated it from the core of his being, saints of God. He hated it. He called it an abomination, meaning it's nothing like God. It is the opposite nature and character of God. It's evil. It's deceiving. It's horrible. And it's deadly. This is what Jeremiah says, verse 5. But they did not listen. Could we point that finger to us ourselves, right? They did not listen or incline their ear to turn their evil and make no offerings to other gods. As we look at this history, how can we not see a merciful God, a patient God? Let let me do some examination in our context today, right? You ready? Look at the chaos in our nation today. Look at the division in the church today. Look at the injustice, not just in our society, but in this word today. Look at the constant sinful acts that continue to elevate, not just locally, but globally. And God, in His grace, in His mercies, in His patience, Withholds from us what we deserve. What we deserve. Separation. Annihilation. Hell. But we serve a God who is patient. He's a patient God. So when you face struggles, remember God's patience on your own heaven. Your own sin. My sin. Our sin. Also, when you face struggles, remember God's sacrifice. Look at verse 6 and 8. It says, he had still one other. Can I get an amen in this room, right? A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I want you to think about that. He said, I, I, I thought this guy was God. I thought the owner was God. And he just said that they will respect him. Like, how do you come with terms in this, right? Easy. Because this death would be the respect that mankind gives to God because of his sacrifice. 
Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, that he is Lord. Jesus is now using this parable to speak of his death to come. The prophetic parable. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples a few times regarding this death prior to this section. Specifically in chapter 7. Jesus said for the third time of chapter 7 in Mark that his death is around the corner. And there is a comparison between the son in this parable and the son of God. Look at the parable, right? The son of God is the beloved son. The son... That gets rejected in the parable would be the true son of God that get rejected here on earth. Right? This same son in the vineyard would be the same son of God who is killed. Let's be reminded of what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 10 in connection to his death. It says that saying this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. All right, this is two chapters earlier. We're going up to Jerusalem, everyone. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, say with me, he will rise. Hallelujah. I want you to see very clear in chapter 10. Who is Jesus talking to in chapter 12? The same people. The same people that he prophesied he, that would take him into account. Right? We see the chief priests and the scribes. These were the religious people we've been reading about for the last few weeks. So why is the death of Jesus important to us today? Here's a simple answer. Because the death of Jesus atones for your sins. Let me say that again. This is where we must understand salvation at the core of its doctrine. You can never understand salvation, sanctification, and glorification if we don't understand the justification of Christ. Are you with me? Because of the doctrine of His atonement. Without understanding God's atonement, You cannot understand true salvation. Therefore, you have all these different denominations start their own different denomination. And it's because of one doctrinal truth. Who saves? Who keeps salvation? And if there's no platform for the doctrine of atonement, there is nothing else. If we think that our yes saved us, Oh, I'm going somewhere today. If we think my will saved us, you've just annihilated the doctrine of atonement. Why was there an atonement for then? If I can choose whatever I want to do. Now, I believe our choices matter, right? Amen. Hallelujah. But when it comes to salvation, why does one man need to be saved? Because Ephesians 2 says, you did. A dead man cannot do nothing, cannot pay bills, cannot even roll in his grave as we make that term, right? Cannot do nothing, cannot come back from the grave and give, my mama cannot come back from the grave and give me potty. I promise you, that Hawaiian is in the grave. That our spirit is with the Lord. 
But listen to me. It's because we understand the atonement, the covering of Christ. We have to understand that in order to understand why we are saved. Jesus paid the price. A price that no one else can pay. You, me, these tenants, these religious sect. We all deserve the same penalty. We all deserve death. But that does nothing. Look at that. Our death does nothing for our salvation. Why? Because we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. You ain't all that. This is the truth. But God is gracious. And God is patient. Therefore, God is merciful. Look at what Ephesians says about this redemption, blood, atonement. It says, in him, in who? Jesus. We. Who's we? The true believers, right? We have redemption through what? His blood. This is the doctrine of atonement right here. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It did not say we were free by our choice. It did not say we were free from walking down an aisle and talking to Zeke. It wasn't, it did not say that I came to the altar, I prayed a prayer, and it did not say that. Look at it, he says this. But him, Jesus, we, the true blood, bought, regenerated church. We've been received redemption through his blood. No choice over there. Just atonement, just covering, just blood-bought, washed-up church. Can I get a witness? There's an old uh, song back in the day, growing up in the church. It was called the blood-bought church, right? And it went like this. For we are in the army of the Lord. We've been washed with the blood. And we are going forth. For there is nothing that can stop. This shouting, moving course with a shout of praise. A two-edged sword. Listen to me. The blood of Jesus that we sing every week is sufficient for you today. Oh, but it happened 2,000 years ago. Listen to me. But it happened. It atoned for you. It atoned for me. And those, my children, your children, that we believe is a part of this new covenant of faith, will experience the blood-bought washing Jesus. Now listen to me. I'm not saying one day a bucket of blood is going to go over them. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying that the Word of God is going to express to His people that we are blood-bought people. Meaning there was an atonement. There was a sacrifice. That sacrifice came through the Son of God. His name is Jesus. And here's the glory of His name. That He did not stay dead, but He rose up on the third day. And on the third day, He spent 40 more days here on earth, as Acts says. And then He ascended into heaven. And then the angels came down in chapter 1 of Acts. And He said, hey, no trip. No act up, Hawaiians. All right? He coming back. He coming back until he returns. Preach the gospel. Preach, preach it unapologetically. Preach it boldly. Who cares who catch feelings? It's called conviction. We need conviction in the pulpit these days. 
bra. Check the heart. The heart say, oh, it's wicked. It's filthy. It's dirty. But God's grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. And we get Jesus. We get Jesus. When you face struggles, remember God's sacrifice. Lastly, when you face struggles, remember God's judgment. This is the one nobody like talk story about in the church today. Verse 9 to 12 says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And Jesus said, he will come and he will destroy the tenants. The word destroy is the word judge. And it's a wrathful judgment. God will destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to the others. What is the symbolic truth in this? God will give his perfect redemption to those who receive him. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 talks about God's judgment in this way. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So there will be two kinds of judgments. All right? God will judge his own. This is the righteous rulers in the text today. The Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. Guess what, Hawaiians? This is you. This is God's people. He will judge. Hebrews 10, 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. First Peter agrees with Hebrews. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is no joke. This theology on God's judgment has not changed because of cultural relevancy, guys. This judgment is set. It's here to stay, and it's here to be revealed. But in this judgment, you ready? If you feel like a dog, praise the Lord. Because here you're going to get lift up. You ready? If you feel judged today, right? If you feel wrong today, praise the Lord. Why? Because there's hope. Let's read on. Look at verses 10. Jesus says to these scribes, have you not read this scripture? Now, this is a sarcastic comment. Because who were the scribes? They were the documentators. They wrote down all the narratives. He says, have you not read the scripture? Here we go. Listen up. Because there's a lot of symbolism in these words. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Look the mood. The mood of the text changes. You see a very judgmental, dark moment going on. But now we're we're moving to a more exciting, celebratory text, right? And I want you to see some of the symbolic terms in this area. Jesus describes his rejection in this messianic psalm. Actually, he's quoting Psalms 118, verse 22 to 23. He uses a stone as a metaphor to describe himself. 
right? This would be the stone that all sinners reject. Specifically, God's people, his rulers. However, the beauty of this stone would be that it would be not a, but the cornerstone. It would be the cornerstone that would fulfill the promises of God for salvation for sinners. Right? It would be the cornerstone that Paul talks about in Ephesians that knits the body of Christ together and united together. Listen to this cornerstone. I want you to hear this. It would be the rock on which Christ builds his church from Matthew 16. This is the cornerstone. This rejection of the stone would be God's plan of using his only begotten son to take on the sins of the world as John 1, 16 says. In verse 11, it affirms this, right? This is the Lord's doing. And it's a marvelous sight. Are you hearing me? This narrative of Genesis to Revelation is all God's doing. This vineyard, this parable that's going on, it's all God's doing. This coronavirus, you guys ready? It's all God's doing. What we're experiencing. This politicians, these politics, hold on, Hawaiians, it's all God's doing. Only one amen, right? Let me be real. Your head, your, your hakaka in your family, everything you're going through right now, it's all God's doing. Why? Because there's beauty in what God does. He turns ashes into glory. He turns mourning into dancing. He turns chaos into this creation. He turns a sinner into a saint. Why? Because he is God. the stuff you're going through everything I'm going to encounter you are encountering you all together as a church as individual families that we are a part of is all God's doing verse 11 says it straight and it's a marvelous thing no feel marvelous that's why we got to go back to the scripture no look marvelous that's why we got to go back to the scripture Listen to me. It's marvelous. Why? Because God does what no earthly man can do for himself. Give up his most precious jewel, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And I don't know if you know, as he's quoting Psalms 118, there's a verse that continues on that maybe some of us overstep. But this quote right here, Jesus only quotes verse 22 and 23, but I want you to see what verse 24 says. You guys ready? Right, just pump me up when I'm actually ready to say. Ready? Here you go. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why, why will I be glad? Because this is the day that the Lord has made. Why will I be glad in my struggle? Because this is the day that the Lord has made. Why will I be glad with all the crap that's in my life? Because this is the day. Hey, 
This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. Ha! Come on, stand up. I will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. Sing it out. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad. Hey, set up your couch. Set up. This is the day. Glory. Hallelujah. This is the day that the Lord has made. Hallelujah. As our alakai come up, remember this. There's an unfortunate situation here. What is the unfortunate situation? Look at verses 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. If you and truly man and woman of God, listen to me, everybody. I know that always sounds scary, yeah? If you and true man or woman of God, you could care less what other people think. There's only one thing that we should care less, care more about, the gospel. Stand strong in the gospel. When you die, listen to me, when you die, it's very clear in the scriptures that you would be accountable, right, to not what other people think of you, but what God's word and how it was expressed in your life. Well, we thank God we serve a God who does the impossible, right? This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Like this parable, though the sun is killed, we, ha- we know that the true sun rises from the dead. His name is Jesus. Say Jesus. Jesus. And he reigns victorious. So here's my conclusion for our first week of this series. When we are involved in times of pain, hurt, and struggle, don't look at yourself first. Look at Jesus. Let me say it again. Because you look at yourself biblically, hey, you're going to be discouraged already. Look at Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, the sufficiency of Scripture... Then it points us to the rotten core of our hearts. And only one person can free us. Jesus. So here's two things that you can be, you can hold on to. Number one, there's purpose in our struggle. Number two, there's hope in our struggle. Amen? God, we love you. Thank you for men of God who understands the scriptures. Thank you for women of God who understand the scriptures. Help them not just question things without examining and questioning thoroughly in the scriptures. Thank you for your word that though the struggle is real, Lord, Jesus, you conquered hell, death, and the grave and receive you as our Lord and Savior by way of truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, Ohana, say loud and proud.